gonna ask if we could start recording again, but then I was just like, "Are we ever gonna do it?" Oh man, long time coming, Dan. It's been a little while. Back in the podcasting. Yeah, yeah. Sorry for everybody waiting with (laughs) bated breath, eagerly watching their podcast feeds. Yeah, exactly. I like to think there were at least one of you. There, you know what? There was someone who emailed during our uh, COVID-filled hiatus to say, and I haven't responded to them yet, to say, um, hey, when are you going to finish your Capital series? <laughs> it's like, ooh, hey, you know what? <laughs> I, I, I hate yeah, to tell I you, buddy. Know. I don't know. Pro- <laughs> I don't know. Probably not soon. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah probably not soon. We're almost there. Yeah. Has anybody ever successfully embarked <laughs> exactly. upon a podcast episode series of Reading Capital? That was a Capital Chapter 1 writing end. group series. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. It was always intended to be Capital <laughs> Chapter 1. God. Yep. How about we start with some of the most uneasy to understand stuff in Marxism? Yeah. We'll just go from there. We'll just yeah, do a yeah, group yeah, series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Easy. Yeah, it turns out we can bumble our way through reading some of the secondary literature, pretending <laughs> yeah. that there is some value in us talking about something that we didn't understand before we started mm. and only partially understand once we've read it. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. the same model really doesn't apply <laughs> to reading Capital. I don't know. It's you just, just have like, to have that dialectical <laughs> brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 No, but it sounds like nobody really wants to listen to your reading group recording your <laughs> reading group for capital <laughs> trying to as you're trying to figure it out in real yeah. time what are you yeah. gonna do yeah. i found myself reading some of it while i was ill and i was just like it's, am i expecting this to make me feel better i was just <laughs> like what the <laughs> is he talking about anyway getting yeah, on with it easy. we're getting there. it's an easy to read yeah, yeah. yeah exactly anyway uh-huh. anyway um, it's been a perfectly normal day today i'm now looking outside and it's <laughs> funny and we've yeah, had perfectly normal weather. Tell you what, Nothing Dan, going on at all. Pre my COVID, uh-huh. for the listeners who don't know, Dan had COVID, so we didn't record. Then I had COVID, so we didn't record. And now we're finally recording. It's been a while. Um, while you had COVID and I didn't have COVID, actually, no, it was right in between planets and potatoes. Yeah. And I was like, this great weather we've had for a week, surely it will hold up. Spring is here. <laughs> and then I forgot that that almost never happens. And uh-huh. then like in the lead up to Easter, it's like you get screwed with the weather again. Yeah, there's, there's frost again this weekend. It, yeah, it? and it snowed like oh, right, a so lot today. today. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, you know, what, what was that do? about? Mad, yeah, what was mad, that about? Mad. Anyway, next week there'll be no more frosts. Yeah, right. the last frosts. The last frosts. Just yeah. go and put some little... Have, they, have, they, have your potatoes... Sprung? One of them might have. Okay. One of them it's, it's might debatable. have. It's <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not entirely clear. It might be a dandelion. I was in a little bit of a fog this morning, and I was just like, is that a potato? I don't really know what's going on. Am I hallucinating a potato? <laughs> yeah. Mm. So, maybe. And if they have, they're just going to have to suck it up and deal with it, because it's cold. Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, well. Yeah. Such is life. Um, COVID sucks. Yeah. It's the worst. Don't get it, everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah, Everybody's getting it. Everybody's getting it. Finally, finally, everybody's having it. Yeah. Well, that's what we said last time. We're like, everybody's getting it. Yeah. Although, we were under the impression that it was physically impossible for either of us to get COVID. Yeah. Turns out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably not the case. What are you going to do? Yeah. Such is life. Yeah. Don't don't go to gigs or (laughs) public places or on public transport. (laughs) Exactly. Or really do much of anything. Yeah. It's just not worth it. I, I, for one, am glad to have gotten it out of the way. Yeah, I mean that's. I what mean, we can I'll say probably catch it again in another six weeks or something. Yeah, but yeah exactly. Know. The the lambda variant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It'll be like the East Kent variant, which yeah. is slowly edging closer. <laughs> oh well. We've had a Kentish variant. We can't have another one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh God, the Thanet variant. Yeah. <laughs> you, you might have had the Thanet variant. I might have had actually. The <laughs> Come to think of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably caught it in Margate. Yeah. Thank you, Margate. Thanks, Margate. Ugh. Yeah, it's something people are always saying. Um, anyway, we're back. We're feel back. like we're putting off 
Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know what you're going to do. We are back, Dan, and um, this has been one that people have been waiting for for a long time. We're finally doing it. We promised for so long. We are reading State and Revolution <laughs> by Vladimir Lenin. That's a joke we haven't made in a while. Yeah, old yeah, recycled yeah. joke. The old ones are the best. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just keep going with it. Um, no, just kidding. Dan, what are we actually reading? Uh, by, by, again. by real popular demand. <laughs> yeah. um, we're going to finish off uh, reading Perry Anderson's Passages from Antiquity to Feudalism because we had such great fun reading it a few episodes ago. Yeah. And uh, it seems to have been well received. So hmm. going to give the second half of the book a little... Little, what do you say? College, college try. try. <laughs> the old college try. Um, so yeah, we both had a little look. Yeah. Um, and it didn't disappoint. It really didn't, did it? Um, yeah. So now we're reading more of the feudalism stuff from mm. the passages from antiquity to feudalism. Kind of, I guess we're going to be grappling with what feudalism actually was, specifically in Western Europe, uh, how it differed throughout mainly just Europe. Um, and potentially what caused some crises and a little bit of different stuff. I would like to take back what I said last time we talked about this book when I was like, this is the cool period of history. Because I think decisively what he talks about in this period of history is the it's cool, cool period, period of history. Jack found a new cool period of history. <laughs> yeah, the cool period yeah, of history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, we can get into it uh, here in a sec. But I mean, just to say, finished another book. And this was really, really good. I know that we'd come across references to this book in the Ellen Meeksons Wood. She references it a lot. Um, but yeah, this really, really was interesting and really illuminating and gets a recommendation from me. Yeah, it's a very comprehensive history. I think we mm. probably said it last time. Um, to have covered so much detail, distance, uh, historical time yeah. in such a short number of pages, um, you really do get a really good overview and scope for the whole period. And it is, it's very refreshing to have a book span like two modes of production. Mm. Um, it's the this, this sign. sign. <laughs> God damn it. Yeah, whatever. They can hear it. They can hear it. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's very helpful to have this book span um, two quote unquote mm. like classical modes of production and cover the transitions between the two. And what it highlights even more to me than the transitions and the things that cause the transitions and the things that make these modes of production. Um, uh, unique, I suppose, is the degree to which historical um, particularities of different regions and different areas like have a really heavy influence, as you would well imagine, mm. on the history of these different regions as they span all of these different modes of production. Um, when I was reading this feudalism sections, it's sort of like there are bits where you're like, you can see very clearly where the transition from feudalism to capitalism was very heavily influenced mm. by the transition from antiquity to feudalism or certain aspects of the world in which we live now are being defined by what happened around the collapse of the Roman Empire and um, the Rome. various states that emerged from it. So yeah, um, it yeah. really does like it gets you out of this like one mode of production and then everything's wiped away and then another mode of exactly. production and everything's wiped away and it's just this gradual progression and yeah. rather like it's much more as we always say like... Um, uh, continuity amidst change. Exactly. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I would always just assume history happened in a vacuum, but I guess that's what <laughs> um, Yeah. No, you said something that uh, really I was thinking a lot about when it's I was just reading like Julius this. Caesar and then Napoleon, right? Yeah, exactly. Like Charlemagne yeah. in the middle. Just a it's few, just a bunch just of a great guys <laughs> doing great things. Um, I was thinking a lot about like how interesting the like geographical nuances of these different modes of productions all influenced each other. And 
it's funny because like now that's really hard to kind of understand because we just, you know, capitalism is this global system. And so it's just capitalism, right? It's just like capitalism is kind of all, all there is. But it's so interesting to like read through this and see how like the way that the Byzantines did things influenced the people on the far side of the Danube and the way that like the nomads influenced Eastern Europe and the way that these like different uh, forms of say like, you know, like the Italian city states and all their modes of production versus like actual like perhaps like Carolingian or like Frankish Western feudalism, they all influenced each other. It's a really interesting way of looking at things. And it got me thinking about like, for a moment, I was like, well, this doesn't seem very useful to how we could perhaps think about a transition to socialism. But perhaps it kind of is because instead of looking to like these outside forces that are going to usher in like a new mode of production or whatever, it's about, I suppose, uh, what's already within capitalism that is going to actually change capitalism itself, um, what is like the embryo within capitalism of the next mode of production. Anyway, um, perhaps we should jump right into it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember we talked as we had kind of been maybe halfway through our first reading um, in between the last episode and this one about like, it was a bit hard to kind of understand what, how he defined feudalism. And it took me a bit at least to like, <clears throat> really, really kind of like isolate what his definition of feudalism is. I wrote down four things, but I mean, the first one is just kind of the most obvious, and you see this even in like all bourgeois histories, right? It's just that the peasants are bound to the soil. It's just like their labor is not a commodity. Uh, uh, you know, what their product is is not a commodity. They're just bound to the soil, and that's just kind of that. And that is kind of like the bedrock of this idea of like Western feudalism, right? It's like, there's the schmuck producers. They can't go anywhere. This is their land. And as you were saying, we did see this um, in kind of like the crisis period of antiquity, both in maybe not the like Germanic quote unquote um, modes of production and the communal modes of production, but definitely in some of these like crises periods leading out of antiquity. Um, obviously, there was slavery. But then in that crisis period, this was kind of formed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, he does. He constantly reiterates where we finished off the last um, podcast episode in this book. Throughout this second section, he's constantly reiterating the importance of this synthesis that mm. he thinks is definitive of the transition from antiquity to feudalism. The synthesis between the sort of declining Roman Empire and what's left behind of that, the sort of imperial system, the imperial state system, um, and the remnants kind of like of... Uh, production on the land in latifundi and the slave mode of production um and then also a synthesis of that with um the a sort of declining waning in transition form of um communal tribal existence that sort of like uh dominates in german in yeah, the German, German, <laughs> German area, <laughs> the general Central European <laughs> Germanic area, um, and whenever, whenever he's sort of surveying uh, Western Europe at the beginning of this book, it's always like different combinations of this synthesis that come together to mm. um, define sort of the the character of the feudalism that's developing in any one area. But yeah, as you say, like. We saw when we were reading this book last time with the general collapse of uh, Rome and with the sort of like transition of um, sort of uh, Germanic communal existence into something that was a bit more militarized and a bit more um, monarchical in its mm. structure. 
you end up having more and more people falling under the kind of like protective sphere of various different uh, lords um, and you get developing this sort of like uh, nascent feudal structure, I suppose, which, um, as you say, sort of binds the peasants to the land and the peasants to the lord. And through some mechanism, the peasants uh, are obliged to... um, give surplus i suppose mm-hmm. like agricultural surpluses to the lord by th- <clears throat> through some method of extraction exactly yeah. yeah and that's that's like one of the next things is how he defines it right is about uh it's what we heard when we uh read the elemixon's wood about the like it would be called here like extra economic uh uh surplus extraction or appropriation i suppose i should say um it, it took the form of like legal appropriation and political appropriation uh more or less just like the threat of violence, I suppose, just being like, give me this or else, as opposed to now under capitalism, which is like, you want to eat, don't you? That's the coercion. Um, which is really, really interesting. And just to say to your last point as well, you're absolutely right. And it's really interesting to see how like these different syntheses happened. Again, as we've seen before um, in some of our readings, while people were all just kind of trying to maintain the status quo. I don't know if you came across that, like, or if you were kind of like, recognize that but it seemed very obvious it's like on the latifundias or whatever it just became uh more it made more sense for the appropriators to just give the say ex-slaves or whoever would be working the land their own plot of land let them be uh productive they can kind of you know do whatever they want with the with the rest of it after you take yours um but it's just their way of kind of just trying to maintain the status quo right yeah 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 Yeah, what continues to be most surprising uh, one of the things that continues to be most surprising from uh, my engagement with this book, I guess, is um, when he dates feudalism to. Mm. Like, he dates it around, like, 900 yeah. or something like that, yeah. which, like, it leaves a vast swath of history yeah. between the collapse of the Roman Empire. I suppose what in this book or what uh, um, historiogra- historiography quite often refers mm. to as the Dark Ages, right? Um, but that period seems to be defined by people attempting to... <laughs> build something analogous to the Roman Empire, right? Mm. Everybody's continually considering themselves emperors. Mm. Um, and as we talked about last week, it's only when you have the death of Charlemagne and the ca- collapse of his empire in northern France, mostly because, well, it, in part because of, like, um, further barbarian raids, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> which seems to be the, one of the main sort of drivers of all of historical movement through this period. Mm. It's like, who's Jesus invading Christ. who from where? <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, as you say, it like leads to eventually the sort of collapse of these efforts to um, hold states together in any sort of like, or hold any sort of like definitive legal political structure together mm. in the form of a state or an mm. empire under the ultimate sovereignty of that state or the emperor. Mm. Um, Even when in hindsight that we can look back on and be like, oh, that's a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I had always, I think, kind of been a little like, I don't know, maybe when I was in like middle school, I was like, the Dark Ages, dude, it was all hell. Everything was just <laughs> on fire. But then I think I was always kind of like, all right, like how... How exaggerated how is that? Like, how bad could it have been? <laughs> and it's funny because if you go to the local museum here, the local Roman museum, there are like pictures of like, here's the town in like pre-Roman times, then Roman times, then post-Roman times, and then the dark ages. <laughs> it's and it's fire. just like, it's literally things are on fire and pigs are in the Roman amphitheater. And it's like, hey, is that is that kind of what it was like? But I suppose to a certain extent, it's like things might not have been completely chaotic. And if you farmed the land, you continue to probably farm the land. 
but also like yeah people were living in like the roman ruins right and people were using that marble to go off and i don't know do whatever they wanted with it but um yeah, yeah, yeah. one of the things that's often struck me thinking about people living in different stages of history is this kind of what was it like to live amongst the ruins of rome <laughs> i know and like it's how did it how did it um how did i suppose feel? yeah or play in people's imaginaries yeah. like what was their relationship to like I don't know. I don't know. Well, he brings it up here just as to say, like, from Russia to, like, the Ottoman Turks to every to the Germans, everybody, you know, they would use this. They would use the names of, like, you know, some sort of bastardization of, like, Caesar for their uh, monarch or whatever, you know, with the czar or with uh, Kaiser or something like that. And so it's like there definitely was this, like, awe. Right. I mean, how could you not? If you saw like an aqueduct that went like so many miles to bring water and then you're like, oh, I've got like 10 pigs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, how could you not? Yeah, yeah. But yeah. And I wonder when that kind of stopped in people's imaginations. I suppose it still hasn't. Yeah. yeah, but, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, we live amongst a huge amount of history here and I don't mm -hmm. really know even how I register. Yeah. But we can kind of we can kind of be like, well, they didn't have cars. You know yeah, what I mean? yeah. They didn't yeah. have, this you know, sense. penicillin. <laughs> so like... <laughs> Yeah, it's like if you were back then and you were like, they had running water uh -huh. and sewage, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and millions of people lived in cities. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, well, he also, the, I, the, one of the things in the definition of feudalism that gave me a bit of trouble was this idea of the parcelized sovereignty, uh -huh. right? And about how, like, the king or the monarch or whoever didn't necessarily have specific dominion over their entire population. The only real direct dominion that they had was limited to like their direct ownership of lands proper. And I know that that might confuse some people, but it's like if you were a king back in the day, you were king because you owned a lot of land, but you didn't own all of the land that everybody paid you tribute to. Like the various dukes, it was kind of their land and they just kicked up. A bit. It was kind of like a little bit mobbish, I guess, if you want to think about it like that. But he really says that there are some really interesting implications for a mode of production when sovereignty is really parcelized like that. It's like peasant pays directly to the duke, but the duke isn't necessarily in charge and he doesn't necessarily pay his, um, you know, keep to the monarch in the same way that the peasant would pay them. It's just like through military service or whatever. Um, you know, he says that, like, this made it so that there wasn't, like, some huge bureaucracy that formed and it allowed for certain kinds of autonomy. But um, it's a really interesting idea. And it makes things, I think one of the phrases he used was, like, the anarchy of the nobility. And it's like, that's not how I think about the Middle Ages, right? You think about it, it's just, like, the pyramid, right? With, like, the filthy peasant at the bottom, then, like, the guy who plays the lute, then, like, a guy with a falcon, a knight, a bishop, and then, like, the king, right? And it's like, well, it was a bit more, like, chaotic than that. Everybody, yeah, yeah wasn't uh, Yeah, not, like, Arthurian legend. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and as you read through this history, like, you can see how this element is quite definitive of how this um, model of feudalism worked and also quite definitive of its breakdown, right? Yeah, What happens exactly. when it collapses. Yeah, yeah. And it is this kind of like the parcelization of the sovereignty kind of links back to what I was saying before about this collapse of like mm. sovereignty in a state or in an emperor, I guess. Mm. Um, and it does, it's, it's quite definitive of both what you were saying before about the the mode of um, exploitation being um, sort of like political, legal rather than economic, right? Mm. Um, and what gives puts them in what puts the the 
the lord in the position to utilize this form of exploitation is simply that that like there isn't really anything to hold him in check he's not obliged necessarily by some kind of legal structure or mm. legal code to be behave in any particular way it's just like what kind of relationship does he have with his local uh, peasants kind of thing and obviously like <laughs> certain models spread in certain areas mm. but also one of the things that that's definitive of is um the very like in a lot of ways, like fragmented and messy nature of the feudal mode of production, but then also its diversity as well. Yeah. How many different ways? There's so many different ways in which the peasants are bound to the lords, kind of thing, or not. In some cases, sometimes there there are still free peasants, and mm. there is still slavery, and then there's people who uh, pay money rent, and there are people who are paid wages, mm. and there are people who uh, work their own land and then work the lord's land, so they owe dues and this kind of thing. Like mm. the the sheer variety of this mode of production. Um, seems in a lot of ways to me to stem from this very the political nature of it or the yeah. political structure. Yeah, um, and it allowed for a huge amount of autonomy, right? Like he says that that's one of the main things that allowed for like the growth of the medieval town in the West, right? Like he says that because there was this parcelized sovereignty, this like structural sovereignty there in Western feudalism, we should say this is what we're talking about. Like it did allow for towns to grow that were very autonomous in a way that might not have happened, well, in a way that kind of didn't happen in certain parts of, like, Eastern Europe. But um, it's very strange. It's very, very strange. And it really makes you see that, like, wow, this really, this way of doing things, this mode of production really did come out of just chaos, right? Because people kind of just trying to hold it together a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I think the stuff he says about the towns, particularly when he's sort of, like, defining this mode of production is really fascinating. And the way ta he, he puts towns in a very central position as he goes through the narrative toward the sort of crisis period of feudalism. He mm. emphasizes the significance of towns a lot. But, yeah, he almost describes towns as being uh, sort of being the, the, the feudal town actually representing a kind of, like almost progressive form of the town compared to the yeah. towns and the cities of antiquity. Because like in antiquity, um, the residents of towns, or at least like the noble residents of towns, made their wealth in the countryside. Um, but there was this kind of like, although the town and the city was um, very central and reached very grand heights, I suppose, in antiquity, um, there was, as you say, this like, separation of the two so that the town could almost de develop its own dynamics in mm. a lot of ways. Now, he does emphasize these are still feudal dynamics. He sure. doesn't sort of fall into the kind of like, at least in this middle period, I guess, he doesn't fall into the trap of being like, it's in the towns that they're developing capitalism kind of thing. Yeah. He still thinks that um, the uh, political and... Um, the political rather than the economic mode of expropriation is what's taking place in towns as well. There is sort of like nobilities or oligarchs in towns who are using this similar kind of force mm. of exploitation in the form of like um, extra economic exploitation, I suppose. Yeah, it's um, interesting. And all of that kind of does lead slowly towards like a generalized crisis. But I think it is worth noting, too, that like. That autonomy, that this this structural autonomy that was kind of like built in, allowed for some really interesting dynamics amongst the producing class, like amongst the peasants. Like he talks a little bit about you know the three field system, which is you know like you plant, I don't know, like you leave one field to fallow, you have like your legumes to fix nitrogen, and then you have your, like your wheat or whatever, and then you just rotate it. But also a part of that is like the communal lands that everybody can just kind of like use to hey keep some pigs on, keep some cattle on, or whatever, and that aren't necessarily 
necessary to produce enough to give to the um, appropriating class. It was just like, hey, here's a bunch of land that like, it was like a definite like communal aspect of the towns and of just like peasant communes yeah. altogether. And it's funny because it seems like it's a necessity. Um, I think one could fall into the track of, trap of being like very utopian about that and being like, wow, it wasn't that great. We're in all these peasants are utopian. And it is, it's really, really cool, but it's also like, it's just kind of necessary. Mm -hmm. Like you couldn't really have this, this for this mode of production. I don't think without having some sort of like communal aspect around like the way things were produced. But it's very interesting that it was like, kind of also came up through the cracks a little bit too of like, well, they're not going to take everything. And the peasants can produce a lot of stuff that they can kind of just keep for themselves. So, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. Yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's something that I've not really quite worked out yet. But I think it stems from this idea of the parcelization of sovereignty. It's this concept of um, justice and how there was mm. this sort of like peculiar and almost expanded concept of justice. But he talks about it kind of being in, it's an impossibility for these states or these state forms, I suppose, to develop any kind of like body which is responsible for legislative function like there's no law there's no development of new laws there's a kind of like attachment to tradition and traditional law um which is sort of the basis yeah. of justice i suppose yeah. but it leaves for all of this peculiarity right so you do have this kind of like um relationship of uh, right and justice that's sort of definitive of the relationship between the peasant and the lord but when um, the class struggle aspect of feudalism hots up and it does mm. a lot on this. Um, it's, you can, like, there's a lot of pushback, right? And as you say about the sort of, like, the existence of communal land, like, um, the con communal land, like, softens around the edges of the class struggle, I suppose, or it provides something for the peasants. Mm. And, uh, it allows them their continued existence, but at the same time... Um, the lords will push back against that when their yeah. when their economic fortunes begin to be impacted by the sort of like internal dynamics, the economic dynamics of the feudal mode kind of thing. Yeah. There isn't anything to define what is allowed and what isn't. And so the nature of the class struggle is um, mm. very hot and active. I Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's funny because when you actually do go back and look at, you know, actual legal codes from that time period, it's all just stuff like somebody punches you you can punch him twice if somebody like <laughs> sleeps with your wife you can cut off a finger and it's just like pages of that kind of crap and it's like nothing i don't know it's like is that practical okay great i guess um yeah for some reason i was given a copy of like some english law code a couple weeks ago and i was like this will be really cool and it's just like one finger two fingers one arm <laughs> cut off his like slave's head and it's just like oh okay all right wow how useful um, but yeah, you're absolutely right about like, so now I guess we're leading into the crisis of feudalism, which he kind of dates as happening in and around like maybe 14th, 15th centuries, so like 1300s, 1400s, um, which tracks with <laughs> history, I suppose, in mm -hmm. a number of ways. But you're absolutely right to bring up like the way that the class struggles really um, heated up uh, all throughout this time. And one thing that he brought up that I really didn't know anything about to a certain extent, or didn't think I knew anything about, was the ways in which, like, uh, unused farmland, unused, quote-unquote, unused land um, w was, like, not just appropriated for, like, tilling and farming and productive use, whatever, by um, local lords, but also just, but like, by the peasants, too. Like, they wanted to kind of get theirs as well, so they would go through and what had been, like, communal uh, woodlands where you could go and, like, get timber and stuff. They would go and just till and destroy and all this stuff. And this really tracks with, like, a lot of ecological history. Like, I think wolves, if I'm correct, in England, like, stopped being a thing, cup, like, maybe a century or two before when he's talking about um, 
like a lot of destructions of old forest land in and around this time. And when like that land kind of runs out, then you really get a crisis. And I didn't really know anything about this like, you know, class struggle uh, based land reclamation projects that went on all over Western Europe. It's like, oh, that sucks. Mm. <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. That's why we don't have any primeval forests around here. Whatever, what are you going to do? Yeah, I guess it's worth now tracking back to some of the stuff that we covered in the first portion of this book because it's sort of the narrative follows through. Something that we were struck by when we were reading the first chapters of this book um, was this suggestion that he makes that kind of like um, antiquity and the ant- antique mode of production was very static. Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah, whereas yeah. there's a huge amount of innovation under feudalism is what he was saying there's a lot more there's a lot more dynamism to feudalism and it clashed totally with my um, <laughs> preconceived understanding of feudalism because I've always been like okay feudalism it's kind of like the zero growth steady state kind yeah. of like um, whatever kind of economy where you just like you, you produce for use and you sort of meet the needs of whoever yeah, and, and the peasants like, have kids and those kids do the same sort yeah, of thing yeah, yeah yeah but but um with the evidence that he provides or the narrative that he gives us, he um, really does do justice to what he's saying, this idea that, like, there's a huge amount of innovation. And it's innovation that the the sort of Romans were thumbing their mm. nose at kind yeah. of thing. He, t- he, com- he brings up the water wheel again, doesn't he? Like, yeah. the Romans passed over the water wheel and the, it took feudalism to sort of, like, develop this technology. But also, as you were saying, like, the, the three-field system, mm. uh, the water development wheel. of, like, heavy plows, mm. um, use of horses rather than oxen, um, or whatever, I don't know. Mm. Like, there were quite a lot of ways in which um, the mode of... the the, the, the um, what's the what's the correct Marxist terminology? Um, the only know what the, the means of production uh-huh. were <laughs> were developed quite heavily with a view to producing um, higher yields. And a lot of, as you were saying, there's a lot of this sort of stems from uh, the nature of the class struggle under feudalism, right? Like the 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 lords extract a certain amount from the peasants, but they ha- they have this sort of developing. Um, they're sort of developing the idea of nobility and lordship and they have this relationship with the towns and there are, there are these guilds that produce luxury goods so they want to be able to have luxury goods and um, expand their living standards I guess and at the same time like obviously the peasants give a certain amount of their week or a certain amount of their mm. year to working on the lord's land so they are incentivized to make their own land as productive as possible because they're losing so much time to um, to sort of service work to the Lord kind of thing. So there is there are dynamics internal to the feudal mode of production that are definitely driving toward um, uh, productivity increases. And as mm. you say, one of the most striking ones is when he's talking about the sort of reclamation process. Mm. Um, and as you say, everybody's doing it. Like the Lords are investing in it, sort of chopping down woodland, um, but also the, the peasants too. Mm. And it's sort of, as you have this expanding population, there is a sort of like... Um, also this expansion of like uh, into unused uncultivated land mm. yeah and um, you bought up literally like that like there was like i don't know if the phrase literal reclamation makes any sense but around here there was quite literal reclamation of like marshland about like draining it and obviously this happened in like the netherlands or whatever but um massive projects yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. people wanted and, land yeah and it was the, the the most interesting aspect of this because like obviously the lords and the peasants are interested in um, land reclamation and finding new arable land or creating new arable land but that's sort of like uh, on the time scale of a single lifetime or even 10 or 20 years kind of thing mm. the the true sort of like masses of this process i suppose mm. were the monasteries where yeah. they're not thinking in single lifetime um 
time scales, I guess. Mm. And as you say, yeah, there was a there was a there used to be in in East Kent there used to be a channel that separated Thanet from the mainland, mm. and it was already starting to silt up. Um, but a lot of work was done to reclaim land from that channel by Augustinian monks during this period. And I sort of knew that this happened, um, or I knew that this, these land reclamation processes happened, but I never really timed them, or yeah. I never really realized they coincided with this sort of like real high point in the 12th and 13th centuries of uh, feudal dynamism and mm. growth, um, yeah. and how this period really represented like a... Um, I don't know, like a real pr period of expansion, mm. I guess. Yeah, growth. Um, one where growth. he makes the point that, like, um, at the time of the the sort of like high point of feudalism in the 13th century, like agricultural yields wouldn't be those agricultural yields wouldn't be matched mm. until the sort of early onset of capitalist agriculture in whatever 400, 500 years. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's pretty, yeah. yeah, it's insane. Yeah, yeah. And it's also funny because, like, it, this speaks to a lot of how just, like, popular history now is just, like, military history in disguise, right? Because it's, like, when we talk about, you know, the glories of the ancient world and, like, the technological marvels, it's, like, that trebuchet was, like, you know, they wouldn't build that for centuries after that. Or, like, that type of boat wouldn't be built again for years or whatever, right? But it's, like, yeah, they also weren't using the water wheel, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's, like, give a break. And this also made me think of that um, when we read the Mike Davis, the Old God's New Enigmas, I think it was, where he has what we might have called the folksy part about, like, the, you know, the producing class has always been the, like, technological, the ones, like, really putting forward technological breakthroughs. And it's like, well, it's pretty true under feudalism. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's, like, really impressive the ways in which, you know, and perhaps this is reading a bit back into uh, history, like, using hindsight in a way that we shouldn't. But it's, like, the ways in which productivity uh to give one example, like really one up agricultural in an agricultural sense because of the producing classes like drive to produce more. It's really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. Like obviously don't come across that too very often. It's you just hear about yeah. like uh, there was Greek fire and then they built a trebuchet and then there was like the guillotine. And that's those are the technological improvements. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I yeah, I was definitely ignorant at this period of time mm. and uh, feel very much more elucidated for reading this book. It's an interesting like you um you divine, define, define, <laughs> you define very clearly and very well kind of like a materialist conception of mm. history and how it develops, right? Like the, the, the antique states invested so heavily in military hardware and technology because their mode of production was predicated on mm. expansion and exactly, enslaving yeah. populations and bringing those slave populations in so that they could work on the land. Whereas under feudalism, um, the workforce wasn't a slave one, mm. but, um, but a local peasant uh, mm. workforce and it defined the types of innovation and investment in technology mm. and manpower that were done both by, both by the peasants and the lords, I guess. Yeah. To go back to something from last week's episode really quick, or not last week, whenever it was, eight yeah. years ago, whenever <laughs> we recorded that episode, because I've been thinking about like, had he really talked about too much? Did he bring up the kind of like, you know, if, if Rome's mode of production was based so heavily on expansion and on slavery, like, I don't remember, like, what point he made about, like, why it necessarily stopped then. Because, I mean, the, the, the old answer, right, is that, like, it was just impossible for them to keep up. They couldn't man all of these defenses. There were uh, contradictions all over the place, people invading, you know, 
uh, mass migrations or whatever, um, and they just needed to like chill out. But I don't know if I I don't know if I ever really got like a good answer about why necessarily Rome stopped expanding. I suppose it's all of those things, and it's also like they continued to do slave raids into like Germany, for example. But um, I don't know. Yeah, it's just something to think about. It's yeah, interesting I don't know whether there were sort of like material limits to their expansion. I guess mm. also like um, I don't know how relevant this is, but I'm remembering all the stuff that we talked about in terms of. Uh, class struggle internal to mm-hmm. Rome, the status of the free citizens, how the lords were kind of trying to placate the free citizens, and obviously like um, the sort of disquiet in the army and how that sort mm-hmm. of like came back to, I don't know. Yeah, but, the guys who were like the gung-ho, let's go actually invade Germany, were kind of the guys that didn't stick around for too long. <laughs> yeah. Surely the ruling classes were like, perhaps not. Um, yeah, it all rocks. And it's funny too, I really cracked up reading this bit about the like... Uh, crisis of feudalism here Mm. um because he's like you know uh there was a come on (laughs) it's a goddamn cops it's the feudal lord (laughs) he's like you know there was a crisis in feudalism uh you know because the class contradictions and the class struggle led to this like inevitable conclusion where you know there was no more land to be reclaimed and also they were running out of ways to get easily to easy to mine silver and this had impacts on the economy and all this blah 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 and then he like pauses and then he's like and also 40 percent of europe's population died to the black plague (laughs) it's like there was also that It's like there was also the black plague. Yeah, there was also the black death, <laughs> and he also he almost inserts that in the middle of a paragraph. Yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs> oh, holy shit! I forgot about that. That is the same time period. Oh yeah, yeah. that happened. That happened. It's funny because but I think it is important. Sorry, it's important though that he 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 doesn't suggest that the collapse happened because of the black, which death. you get a lot. Yeah. Like even in a lot of Marxist literature, you do get a lot of. Yeah. I've probably been uh, made the mistake of saying it was just because of the black death, mm. but of course, it was a lot of different things. Um, also, yeah. What was I meant to say? Something about the Black Death. There's a point when he starts talking about inflation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, oh, yeah. okay, inflation was an integral part of the collapse of feudalism. <laughs> oh, right. yeah, well, what are you going to uh-huh. do? Silver, huh? Yeah. Um, it's interesting because when he talks about the towns, I had heard a while ago um, about on the like subject of the peasants' revolt out here, right, in England um, in the 1300s, that like a lot of these people... Like, when you look at tax records, for example, you see that, like, peasants paid in hard coin. And it's really interesting because that just tells us that, like, oh, this transition to, like, towns, perhaps, had, like, really been well underway for a while. Because you don't really think of peasants as having access, regular access to a lot of hard coin. But it's like, oh, everyone just had a lot of money, right? Or not a lot of money, but, like, they were able to pay in hard coin. Um, So you could see how a, like crisis in the availability of say silver would like really affect everybody and not just say like the guy scrooge mcduck sitting on his throne of silver right <laughs> um yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. crises crises points wouldn't wouldn't have been a good time it's like a petit bourgeois though it always is dan um should we talk some more about the crises sure yeah something that i found really interesting was sort of how we could we could talk about the sort of like what caused the crisis maybe but something that i found really interesting was how so many events that I was familiar with in history, when you overlay this history of the sort of like ascendant and descendant yeah, phase yeah, of this yeah. mode of production and it's slipping into crisis, like he, um, I never really put, put the peasants' revolt in England, an example, in mm. the context of um, increasing class conflict as uh, the 
the nobility and the lords suffer the sort of like um, the, the declining yields that result from poor land management, but also the monetary crises that come, as you say, from uh, difficulty in mining silver. They sort of overextended their ability to mine silver and it wasn't really possible to keep up with the desire to mint new currency. And then, as, as I was saying, yeah, also this sort of like process of inflation that was happening that was driving up prices that prevented them from maintaining the lifestyles that they were um, accustomed to, I guess, led to this like uh, more aggressive exploitation of the peasantry, I guess, which mm. then in turn led to all of these like massive peasant uprisings, basically all over Europe, mm. of which the peasants revolt in England in what, 13, whatever, um, was in 1381 just looking at my notes, <laughs> was an example of this. At the same time, he also talks about how, um, as what I was saying before about like, uh, when the mode of production, when the feudal mode of production slips into crisis, they fall back onto the sort of like, okay, how do we, um, how do we expand our incomes, I guess? We do yeah. it the way we've always done through uh, military expansion and through um, extra economic exploitation kind of thing so then also you get the the hundred years war mm. and you get the wars of the roses i can't remember what he calls the wars of the roses i thought it was oh, quite yeah there funny was like a, he had a zinger about the wars of the roses. Yeah, 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 yeah um oh he calls it um <laughs> Bar baronal gangsterism <laughs> of the wars of the roses i don't know <laughs> bloody northern yeah which it, i mean it's funny you sort of study the wars of the roses in school and it almost seems a bit sort of noble you know mm. oh but like yeah. but like it was just a horror inflicted upon the mm. civil civilian populations of Europe by all these marauding lords and sort <laughs> of like, uh, yeah, as he says, this of gangsterism that where they're yeah. trying to just like exploit and exploit and exploit, and then really, the Black Death comes along. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it would really suck to get pressed into service to fight in one of those wars. Yeah, that would just be so brutal. Yeah. And it's funny because you don't really get the sense that a lot of that took place in like the early time periods here. It's like. For one reason, it's like, why would you want, if you were a lord, why would you want to send all of your, like, producers off to die, right? So it's like, there's just no need. But it's like, yeah, when these crises periods happen, then you actually get, like, hey, big battles again, which is wild. Mm. Ugh, very mm. brutal. And, yeah, I was I, really interested in this idea, again, going back to the idea of the towns and how they developed in Western Europe versus how they developed in Eastern Europe. And, again, this gets in. He has a section in here where he talks all about, like, uh, Eastern Europe and about... Uh, he also talks about Scandinavia and he talks about a couple other places. But Eastern Europe here, he kind of uses as an example to show, like, because towns developed in kind of a quote-unquote more advanced way in the West, this is his thesis, and they didn't in the East, when there was this crisis, when everybody moved to the towns, it led to kind of, in the West, it led to kind of like a weakening of the feudal relations. But in the East, it had the exact opposite dynamic. It led to, like, further degradation, I think he says, of the peasantry and, like, you know, made possible for the fact that serfdom in, say, Russia would continue well into, like, the 19th century, right? Um, it's really interesting because he just says, the reason he says is because towns were so uh, much more prevalent and strong and able to throw their weight around in the West and not so much in the East. Um, it's very, yeah, it's an interesting idea. He also goes into a couple other things, perhaps slightly more cooler things, which we'll get onto in a moment that might've caused that as well. But, um, yeah, it's interesting. Obviously, because like you and I aren't experts on any of these subjects, we just kind of have to be like, oh yeah, that's yeah, the case. Yeah, but yeah. it's interesting. Harry says so. Yeah. Harry says so. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I haven't got a huge amount to say about the Eastern European stuff other than to sort of like sketch the broad narrative. And basically it comes back to this idea of the synthesis, right? He's mm. saying that that synthesis didn't really happen. It definitely didn't happen in Scandinavia. Mm. And it didn't really happen in Eastern Europe either. Um, so they were left in this position where feudalism didn't... I mean, the populations were so much smaller, um, but feudalism didn't really develop in this period at all. Um, it was kind of exported in some ways. At the high point of feudalism, um, there was great sort of eastward expansion into sort of uh, lower parts of Germany and into the Balkans and this kind of thing. So it was gradually introduced. Um, but feudalism really didn't come about in Eastern Europe until the point that it was sort of fallen into crisis in the West, I guess. Mm. Um, so it had a much later development of feudalism and then its sort of lifespan went on much later, as you mm. say, I guess. Yeah, and also, like, I suppose, like, Slavic migrations into, like, the Western, not Western Europe, but, like, their Western sphere, say, like, you know, uh, more like Southern Slavic countries now, Balkans types of areas, wouldn't really happen until, like, quite a bit later, where they either supplanted or just, like, lived amongst the people who were already there. Um, that wouldn't happen until like the 600s or around that time period. Um, so yeah, there would just there would just have been no time really for like classical era Rome to like, you know, really like do anything, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, there yeah, wouldn't yeah. much time for the synthesis. Um, and also <laughs> talking of migration, <laughs> talking about migrations. Um, this is why we're talking about the cool period of history, Dan. Pretty much from about Attila the Hun <laughs> up until about I don't know Tamerlane, I guess. We're nomads, folks. We're going to talk about nomads. We're going to talk about pastoralism. And the chapter where he talks about nomads here, he calls it. It's titled the Nomadic Break, right? Not B R E A K, but B R A K E, like to A stop. Break on development. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. to basically be like. Because of the constant pressure of these nomadic invasions into Eastern Europe, that was also another reason that, like, the advanced feudal dynamic never really showed up. Because there was just constant pressure from, like, oh, our town's going to be burned down yeah, in yeah, 100 yeah, years. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, we need oh, to the Mongols are here again. Great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's really interesting when he talks, I suppose the main reason to bring this up is to talk about another mode of production, which is pastoralism, which he kind of says is barely a mode of production. Yeah, it's, it's really even interesting. A barely a way, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like barely even a way to sustain <laughs> a civilization, which perhaps is not necessarily the case. I think you could probably point to like some North American um, uh, uh, pastoralist societies that are able to do just fine. Mm -hmm. But I suppose if you want to develop something with like, I don't know, riches or like land or like property, like, Property doesn't really exist in pastoralism because your property has, like, a time limit on it. Because all property is is, like, we're going to let our goats and our cattle and whatever uh, graze here for this season. And then we're going to fuck off because we, you know, we can't stay here for that long because they've eaten all the grass. Um, <clears throat> and he says that, like, under pastoralism, nomad mode production, whatever you want to call it, there is, like, a necessity to either impose tribute or to just, like, straight up just, like, invade places and conquer them. Um, because to him you need a bit more to sustain yourself than what you can get from just herding cattle and moving around and being awesome kick-ass nomads. So that's the reason that he says that structurally, like why you get so many nomadic invasions, as I said, like all the way from Attila the Hun to like, yeah, basically like the implementation of like gunpowder to like the frontier of Siberia or whatever. Um, it's really fascinating. It's really just like, damn. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it in that context, in, in the context of like um, the sort of like material nature of how that mode of production functioned uh, <clears throat> resulted in this behavior, which um, was so definitive of the history of Eastern Europe, I, yeah. uh, Europe, I guess. He's sort of saying that like 
you can't really maintain uh, sizable populations upon um, pastoralism and you need to sort of incorporate a degree of sort of raiding and you might even find, I guess, in other examples of pastoralism across the world, there is this element of like raiding sure, yeah. other pastoral communities to steal mm-hmm. their kind of like um, animals, I guess. <laughs> or animals. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's like horses or cattle or cows yeah, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, if you're living off herds, you've not you're not interested in land as a mm-hmm. as a private holding. You're just interested in. Uh, just living on the wind baby (laughs) just living on the wind i will say i didn't plan on bringing this up but right before this fuck i'm gonna sound like such a nerd the new horus heresy legions or not horus heresy legions new horus heresy announcement on their website there's a quiz what legion legion will you be i've 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 not taken it i I am to you though the white scars oh that's cool yeah fair enough (laughs) speaking of nomads speaking of just generally being cool anyways Getting back to the discussion. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'll take I'll take the which legion should you paint your Horus Heresy miniatures <laughs> quiz yes. after we finish. I mean, it seems like all my answers were just the ones that you should answer, and like any like I don't know, it just seemed like that's just logical. Why would you pick anything else? I mean, we'll see what you get. But yeah. anyway, yeah. Um, well, I'm definitely like I've seen I've seen people taking that quiz. I've seen I watched I watched somebody take the quiz, uh, and the first question is like, "Are you gonna do good?" Are you yeah, gonna literally, evil? and <laughs> it has like, pictures of like what legion. And it's like, "Oh, are you gonna do the are good you thing?" The no, Are you Rogel Dorn? Uh, yeah. like, it's like, yeah, okay. I got yeah. some things to say about Rogel Dorn. You know yeah. what I mean? um, Don't get me started <laughs> on Rabuki Gilly. <laughs> anyway, now we will be discussing which mode of production in uh, feudal era Europe corresponds to which legion in the Horus <laughs> Yeah, we're going to have to think of some more squares on the political compass if we're going to put all yeah, 18 yeah, exactly. legions on the, all the Primarchs. <laughs> Maybe we could put the Primarchs on the political compass. That's we could probably we do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I was hoping to go for our leaders. next live stream for that. Yeah, exactly. I watch out. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, <laughs> um, anyway, they kick ass. Um, White Scars. White Scars. Yeah. I was going to say we should move on to talk about the Space Wolves, perhaps, because uh-huh. that's his next chapter where uh-huh. he discusses Scandinavia. Yeah. He discusses Vikings. I mean, come on. Like, this is cool. This is cool stuff. I hate to say it. This is just very cool stuff. Um, here he uses Scandinavia, um, and I mean Perry Anderson, not the God Emperor, uh-huh. um, as an example of a control group, right? If we're using, like, historical materialism, here's a control group for people that didn't have the synthesis at all, and there weren't necessarily migrations where people were supplanted. They were just here, didn't really have a whole lot of contact with um, Rome, isn't I don't think necessarily true. I think that like maybe this could be updated with like all of the archaeological finds that have shown that like these people were trading with Rome very far away. But, um, but they certainly weren't conquered by Rome, which exactly. is sort of the definitive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I wonder. I, can't, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe. But yeah, no, you're right. Yeah. You're, you're right. But um, it's interesting because I remember when we did our first episode on this, I was kind of like... I feel like I'm going to fall into the trap of just thinking that, like, feudalism is the, like, thing you fall into when nothing else is working out. And it kind of seems like that is more or less what happened in Scandinavia. But I guess it's a bit more complicated than that because, like, because there were so many, like, uh, raiding parties and just raids that were part of uh, Scandinavian modes of production. I'm just going to say Viking modes of production, even though that's that, cool. Yeah. It does sound cool, yeah. even though it might not be historically accurate. <laughs> the Viking mode. <laughs> The cool mode. Production willy nilly. <laughs> yeah, why not? Um, yeah, because yeah. because like raiding was such a part of that. Um, uh, 
there was an importation of slavery as well. And this is like very obvious when you look at like the Kievan Rus, which is just like Vikings going down and just like taking a bunch of slaves and also like more or less just conquering large areas, what would become Russia. Because there was like this importation of slavery and slave labor into Scandinavian um, societies, <clears throat> you didn't necessarily need a like strong nobility that went around and just like kicked peasants' asses, right? Like for a long time while the slave labor was around, um, there was a free peasantry. I forget exactly what it was called, but um, there was more or less a peasantry that could kind of just be left to its own devices because production, like vital necessary production, was either being done by slaves or they're just going off and just stealing it, right? Um, yeah, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah. Not necessarily, I suppose it is a control group, but it's also just something completely different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I guess is and a it's an interesting, group. like, well, it's just two ways to talk about it, I suppose. He gives a, he, he gives a kind of, like, general overview of the arc of the existence of this sort of, like, Viking mode of production in this <laughs> period of time. Um, from what I was saying before about it being quite definitive, having a definitive influence on the origins of feudalism in northern France because of the required the sort of collapse of a structure, a state structure which could defend against these kind of raids. Um, so early on in this period, um, the sort of like peoples of Scandinavia are quite um, dominant and powerful through this period, mm. I guess, and obviously they invade and conquer large portions of England. And what you were saying about um, free peasantry is quite interesting because obviously we think of the Vikings as being like yeah. like horned helmet raiders <laughs> kind of thing who just go a Viking and steal peasants and whatever yeah. uh, raid monasteries, which is <laughs> is true. But also like they did set up the Dane law in, in mm. sort of northern England mm. and settled and um, and just basically did peasant agriculture kind of thing. Yeah. So like um, there is this period of time where. Uh, they are quite have a dominant and powerful influence over northern Europe, um, but then this sort of like that dominance begins to ebb. Basically, mm. obviously, they're sort of like uh, excised from England. They're defeated at the Battle of Stamford Bridge in 1066, um, and from this point, they kind of like their influence is waning, um, and it's through that period that at least certain areas of Scandinavia sort of drift into feudalism. He mm. kind of says that. Sweden never really develops feudalism. In Denmark, they are sort of invaded mm -hmm. from Germany. So there are certain types of uh, feudalism that are installed there. Can't remember what he says about Norway kind of thing. But it's definitely this process of like that mode of production in collapsing crisis as feudalism grows and becomes more dynamic and more powerful and is able to... And the sort of the feudal states, obviously, I don't mean feudalism mm. personified. <laughs> like the feudal states of Western Europe um, are able to apply a degree of dominance and control um, over at least their immediate sphere, if not like the Scandinavia in its entirety kind of thing, which sort of pushes um, that Viking mode of production, quote unquote, into <laughs> decline, um, mm. which leads it into new and different directions, some of which are toward types of feudalism, I guess. Yeah, which is all, it's it's also really fascinating. And you're right to like, we need to emphasize, I think, just how interconnected all of these societies were. And again, like how they all interacted with each other. And this is kind of what I was trying to get at earlier on when I was saying like how interesting it is when different modes of production are able to interact in these syntheses that they create, like just in a geographical sense. Because it's like, if you look, I don't remember if it was like Canute or if it was like Harold Hadrado or one of these guys like was a Byzantine like like not general but like I forget what they were called but like there were 
when Vikings made it down to like the Byzantine Empire, they would be taken in and become, I can't believe I don't remember what they were called, but they'd become like crack troops, right? Okay. And this guy was like one of them. He was like one of the head ones. And so it's really interesting the ways in which like not just trade, you know, we've all seen like the famous photos of like uh, a carving of the Buddha on like some Viking's grave in like Scandinavia or something like that's insane, but also just like the cultural and societal interactions that all of these places had. It's really easy to think that, like, before the steam engine, before the combustion engine, you know, nobody really ever went anywhere. But that's definitely not true. And obviously we see that with, like, the Vikings or whatever, um, because they would just straight up go and settle different places. Mm -hmm. And even when you talk about, like, the Angles and the Saxons, right, it's like for a long time those were believed to just be brutal invasions. But it's like, well, it's not necessarily the case. They just kind of showed up and everyone was like, yeah come not hang out probably a little <laughs> bit gnarlier than that but yeah, like yeah 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 the Celts how you feel about that one <laughs> exactly yeah uh, the poor uh, the poor honorable Celt um, but yeah it's all very interesting yeah, and yeah, all yeah. of this stuff the ways they interact produce new modes and influence their own modes and there's regression quote unquote and it's really really fascinating mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the, a little bit of a tangent, but one of the really interesting things that came up in this book sort of related to what you're saying um, is this relationship between um the early stages of English feudalism and French feudalism and a sort of secondary synthesis that happened between mm. the Normans and uh, Saxon feudalism, I suppose. He sort of suggests that, like, obviously the historic synthesis that he's so focused on has its, like, um, uh, a po- high point, I suppose, mm. in, in northern France after the end of Charlemagne's empire kind of thing. Um, but he's talk, he talks about a similar kind of synthesis having happened in England, right? There was this Roman influence, although not as significant. Um, but he he makes a really interesting point that, and something that we didn't talk touch on actually, but that um, Perry Anderson talks about as being very central to the feudal mode of production and its nature is this idea of the fief, right? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. the idea that you, uh, a king or a monarch, monarch, same word, uh, same idea, or whatever, <laughs> like... Um, gives a piece of a parcel of land to one of his nobles or lords, makes them a knight, and mm. in return what they owe is military service, right? There's this relationship between the right to the land is predicated on noble military service kind of thing. And he says that that concept is mis- it doesn't really happen in England, but it does happen in northern France, and it's something that the Normans, although they were Vikings, mm. do adopt from living in northern France. And um, it's one of the things that's very definitive of... or. D- leads to their success in conquering England mm. is the they're, they're having this sort of like um, fief structure which doesn't really yeah. apply so like the nature of the the military that um, whatever he's called Arrow in the Eye Guy um, <laughs> Other Herald Harold, what is, um, the nature of the military that he is able to muster to fight mm. the invading Normans is just not sufficient yeah to, he brings like, up heavy cavalry yeah, 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 quite a bit of a role yeah, like yeah, ending like, that like Viking whatever mode. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And what happens as a consequence of that is William the Conqueror is able to invade England, obviously. Otherwise, he wouldn't be William the Conqueror. Um, <laughs> Just be the bastard. Uh, install this kind of like fief type of feudalism but and, and parcel up England into all of these fiefs. But also coming back to this idea of like parcelized sovereignty, because he is... Because he's because he's conquering and installing feudalism, um, the sovereignty isn't really parcelized to the same degree that it is in northern France. You do get um, a slightly more centralized, coherent political state structure in England. And if we go back to reading Ellen Mixon's Wood, 
one of the things that she talks about um parroting robert brenner i guess that makes the development of capitalism in, in england a thing is the nature of the norman state mm. that um has been in existence since the uh, Norman conquest. That's kind of what I was saying about the when we started about the the nature of this transition from antiquity to the feudalism. In some ways, in some areas, in lots of areas, really, is also definitive of how later transitions take place. Kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And you're really right to point out that it was a conquest, right? Like when William the Conqueror came over here, like especially in the north, right? Like they call it the Harry of the Harrowing North. Of it was just like, yeah, people weren't stoked, and yeah, it wasn't yeah, just because yeah, he was yeah. some French guy, right? Yeah. It's like you know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was something new, definitely. Yeah. He wasn't burning the crops so he, in, in order to enrich the soil. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. It's slash and burn, guys. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's, it's funny, right? I'm always, it took a while for me to really understand as a pesky new worlder the real significance of 1066. But it is like, if you go back English or whatever, like the history of the British Isles is really much more defined by like what's going on in Scandinavia before that. And this is fairly obvious, I would imagine, for anyone that's grown up here. But like, yeah, I'd never really made that connection because it just kind of seemed like, yeah, okay, it's just like a new dynasty. It's just like a new king. Okay, he like spoke French or whatever, but like I don't really understand why this is such a big deal. 1066, what's it all about? But yeah, it really changes not just like the geographic like center of kind of what's uh, uh, affecting, you know, the political economy, I suppose, of like the British Isles where that where it is in those respective orbits, but also just like structurally, it completely changes everything. Um yeah, it's very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bummer, but interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why did it all go wrong? It was either yeah. the agricultural revolution or it was yeah. William the Conqueror. <laughs> yeah, we need to bring back Edward the Confessor. He's his <laughs> direct descendant. Yeah, yeah. Brave, the brave Celts and the Angles and the Saxons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 If only we had a different monarchic lineage in England. <laughs> Things yeah. would have worked out so much better. Yeah, it's had these damn lizards. <laughs> what are you going to do? Um... Then I guess the only bit that we haven't really talked about, and I don't necessarily know how much of this I got, perhaps mm-hmm. because it was a little bit confusing, perhaps because it's the end of the book, uh-huh. um, is when he's discussing the south of the Danube stuff. And he's discussing uh, what exactly happened. Why wasn't there this synthesis between, like, barbarian, heavy air quotes, like uh, communal modes of productions around uh, Constantinople and the Byzantine Empire, around, like, the Balkans? Um, when that happened to, like, the Germanic tribes and, like, the Western Roman Empire? Why was there the synthesis there when there wasn't for the Byzantine Empire and the, the like, Balkans, say the Slavs or whoever, um, when the Byzantine Empire lasted for so much longer? It's, it's a lot more complicated, it seems mm-hmm. like, and it seems like it has to do quite a bit with, like, the actual political-legal structure of the Byzantine Empire itself. Um, I don't know what you got from it, but it was a little <laughs> bit just like, oh, wow, okay, geez. It's, it's, yeah, I think you're right. That, that, that It does seem that, um, well, I mean, the Byzantine Empire does seem to be just, in some ways, a very diminished continuation mm. of Rome in a lot of ways. It's very Byzantine, it's... one might say. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I mean, in some ways, this sort of, like, idea extends all the way back to the very beginning of the book kind of thing, mm. where he's talking about... Um, and sort of the lineage, a lineage that's drawn all the way back to um, sort of Greek antiquity, I guess. Mm. Like the 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 number of cities that are spread across this region. Um, there's a reason why you get the high point of like the slave mode of production in the West, right? Because you have these huge tracts of land that you can just turn into huge agricultural areas where 
Byzantium was never as reliant on slavery, or Eastern Roman Empire, I suppose, was never as reliant on slavery as the West. So that crisis mm. never affected them in the same way. Um, but then, you're, yeah, exactly, you're right to say it all comes back again to this sort of like parcelization or not of political sovereignty, right? Mm. There is the continuation of a state. Mm. And um, one of the key sort of like class conflicts that I drew from this book, I guess, or this chapter on Byzantium that applied to this region of Europe was you still had a kind of like bureaucratic state structure mm. or bureaucrats and representatives of the state that were still trying to hold together a certain type of um, political legal structure. And you did have this sort of agricultural nobility that would have liked perhaps to have installed <laughs> something like feudalism, but there was this sort of resistance mm. and tension which sort of like just continued all the way through until the Ottomans came over and just sort of knocked them all over, I guess. But the other thing that I found really interesting in this, he was talking, he talks a lot about like the various different shifting of like which um, states in this region have dominance. Is it the Byzantines? Is it the Greeks? Is it the Serbs? Is it whoever kind of thing? And there's just, just general back and forth. One of them will invade and not really be able to install a uh, significant like... Um, keep those expanded borders kind of thing mm. and it would shrink back again and the thing he says is basically all of these people were trying to be emperors yeah they exactly, were they weren't yeah. willing to be um monarchs in the sort of like diminished western sense where they don't have this political control that we've seen that's uh so central to feudalism right mm. they all want to be charlemagne they yeah. all want to be caesar they all want to be an emperor mm. and there's just these these various different efforts to install an empire and it just like, yeah. keeps like, happening and then collapsing and happening and collapsing yeah. and like i mean it really nothing it really pushes the, nothing really pushes them over you know so they yeah. just carry on in this kind but of But that's like, one of the things that's so fascinating yeah about the byzantine empire is that it's like it kind it comes down to such a specificity for a number of different times that like the Byzantine empire could have ended like a lot of different times and it didn't. And for some of the re sometimes it's just as specific about like how big their walls were. It's really? insane <laughs> yeah. because it's like, yeah, at a certain point, like the Islamic conquests more or less made it right up to there, but they went, oh, we're not going to be able to take the city. Fuck it. Let's just leave. Same thing happened with like a number of different invasions. Same thing happened. Like it would literally take until the Ottomans showed up with like the biggest guns the world would see until like, I don't know, like World War One to like actually destroy Constantinople until they could actually do it. Mm -hmm. It's like the Fourth Crusade kind of did it, but what are you going to do? They were back after that. But like, yeah, sometimes it just comes down to very specific little things. It was very, you know, Constantine, he picked a good spot, picked a good spot to defend <laughs> a city. And it's like, goddamn, it took a very long time to actually knock that goddamn city down. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, all fascinating. This has got me jazzed, Dan. It's got me jazzed to figure out what happens next. Yeah. I've heard there's we, something called absolutism. Yeah, we need to buy the next book, basically yeah. because this book doesn't have a conclusion. Yeah, it really, it, it just, just ends on like, oh, well, that was kind of difficult to understand. Yeah. Now it's over. <laughs> So, yeah, what's the other book called? Lineages of the, the Absolutist State. State. Yeah. So, yeah, look out for that in our um, our future, future, back future catalogue. It, it, yeah. It'll I be suppose that you're listening to this in two years' time, maybe we'll have got around to it. Yeah, yeah. in which case, let us know how it is. Um, yeah, this really rocked. I was really impressed. I mean, I know that we kind of had some criticisms last episode about, like, you know, reading history back or whatever, or about, like, you know, the... Uh, critique that we came across in Ellen Meekson's Wood about, like, you know, reading, trying to get productivity up. But I kind of, I don't know, having finished it, I'm kind of like, I'm a lot more, uh, not lenient, but like, book rocks. 
it's such a good done. history. It is, yeah. Like, you can, I guess you can quibble over whatever you want. Yeah, sure. But, yeah. like, as an introduction to this period, um, I think, it, yeah, it's stellar. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. I, uh, a couple weeks ago now, actually it would have been like a month or two ago, on... Time. Time. Yeah. <laughs> time. On the picket lines, Dan, I was talking to a professor of history and a professor of archaeology. And I was talking to him about this book, and the professor of history was really into it. And he was like, whoa, like a new theory, grand theory of history. I love that stuff. This, whoa, dude. Like, I don't think he'd really come across with some, like a lot of like historical materialism before. And the archaeologist was just kind of like, yeah, whatever. But like, does the archaeological record support all of that? And I, so I'd kind of gone into reading the second part of the book being like, you know, concrete versus abstract. Like we have these big theories of history, but like, I don't, I was like ready to be very critical of it, but he really pulls it off because it would be really easy to write a history like this where you cover 2,000 years, two and a half thousand years and just, you know, only focus on the big things and completely forget about like concrete history in detail. But he does a really good job of not. And for a book that's like what, like 300 pages, like yeah. Pulls it off really well. This is definitely more history than it is historiography. It sort yeah. of ad adopts, in a lot of ways, a traditional Marxist historiography. And if you wanted to be even more critical of that sort of like mm. uh, separation of time into those modes of production, maybe you'd be like, this is too Marxist kind of thing. <laughs> um, but also, it's not like orthodox marxism yeah. kind of thing it's definitely if you if you if you uh, have been introduced to the ideas of the various modes of production if you have some conception of the marxist partitioning of history marxist historiography there's a huge amount of wealth of actual history mm. to be gained from reading this book it's not going to do you any harm to, yeah. <laughs> to look at it for sure i mean we're not experts in this yeah, topic, right? <laughs> we're just two schmucks reading the book so. <laughs> exactly a couple of schmucks reading a book i mean there even yeah there's the bit where he like where he talks about Eastern Europe, and he's like, Marx said that this was the only place in Europe where feudalism developed in an entirely economic way. And he's like, that's not necessarily true. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, yeah, we've got some critiques to be made. Um, I'd actually like to go back and find the bits in the Elamixus Wood where she's actually talking about this. But from what I remember, she's mainly just talking about lineages of the absolutist state. Yeah. So maybe we'll just save yeah, that. Yeah. Also, the cool periods of history, folks. Yeah. So pick it up. It rocks. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. White scars or space wolves. Exactly. Choose Who are you going to be? Yeah. Or I suppose the custodians, in a sense. Uh -huh. I mean, I'm not going to go down this route. I'll just be naming all of them. <laughs> but these guys are so cool. These guys are so cool. <laughs> yeah, Conrad oh, Cruz, doesn't he rock? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you Have be? you decided what uh, what legion you're going to pick, Dan, when you inevitably get the box? No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I can't imagine, like, yes. I can very well imagine myself <laughs> buying the new edition of Horus Heresy. Well, I'm kind of down. Um, I can't imagine not painting them one of the Traitor Legions. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. That, yeah. that narrows me down to nine. Yeah, indeed. And, uh, yeah. Mm. So I'll start working on it from there. Yeah. I was thinking perhaps, I don't know, Raven Guard's cool. A lot of black, though, so I don't know. Yeah. No else are called the world leaders. So. <laughs> <laughs> Jack making classic choices. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Raven Guard are just loyalist. Well, they're not loyalist world eaters. They're loyalist um, <laughs> night lords. Uh, really, mm. they? Mm, yeah. Who are the loyalist world eaters? Blood the angels. Blood angels. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Anyway. We really ought to stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we really ought to stop. All right, we're back. We're going to be getting back to it regular. Thanks for sticking with us. If you have stuck with us through our illnesses, um, excited to do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've been, I'm really pleased that we've gotten back to it. Yeah. Um, Good fun. Thank you everybody for listening. Yeah.
we'll uh, talk to you out of them, whatever the next time Yeah, I yeah, The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more commie discussion. Till next time. Whoa.